this afternoon evening um, we are um, we're in the season of Advent that much is clear and in this series that's looking at how people prepare for the first Christmas and the passage that you just had read to you is focused on Mary we met her last week the angel Gabriel Gabriel came to see her and he said lots of things to her and uh, she spoke twice a total of 23 words, nine the first time and 14 the second. And in this passage, we have the longest conversation between two women in the entire New Testament. Um, and uh, we also have in Mary's song the longest speech by any woman in the New Testament. And in fact, Mary doesn't speak again in all of Scripture except to tell her son that they've run out of wine at a wedding 31 years later. Th this is it. And uh, so what I would like to try and do with this passage is to really read it properly so that we might meet the real Mary. Because if you're going to meet her, you're going to meet her here in this these, this chapter one and two of Luke, particularly chapter one, and in this where she speaks. Because she is the most frequently painted woman in all history. There is no woman who has been painted more often than Mary, and the paintings are all pretty much the same. She's all be very beautiful, she's silent, and uh, the verb that we tend to think of with Mary is pondering. Mary does a lot of pondering. And um, she's basically there often just as a backdrop to the baby Jesus, somewhere for the baby to sit, because otherwise babies don't look very good in paintings. But we know how Luke wrote this gospel, because he tells us right at the beginning he, he did it by going along and seeing eyewitnesses, chapter, chapter 1 and verse 2. And therefore I myself have carefully investigated everything right from the beginning. And we know from Acts 21 verse 17 that Luke was in Jerusalem for about two years between 57 and 59 AD. He traveled back with Paul and he was there. And Mary would have been a woman in her 70s. Now, Elizabeth and Zachariah would not have been there. They were old 60 years before, so they've gone. And Simeon and Anna, who he meets in the temple, wouldn't have been there either. The only eyewitness to give an account to look of what's in these chapters is Mary. She is the only common source that you can think of if you read this. So this is an old lady's account in her 70s to a young man called Luke. And this is what she wanted recorded. This is what she wanted written down. So this long exchange between her and Elizabeth and her song is important. It's critically important. Mary, at the age of 70, felt it's what she really, really wanted to record. And of course, she would know all about what happened with Zachariah because she spent three months with Elizabeth and when she explained or oh, the angel came to see me or oh, that's can you imagine 
Elizabeth not saying, it's funny, the same thing happened to me. And it was Gabriel too. Imagine she wouldn't tell him. Of course she would tell. So she was there. So we have this young 12 to 14-year-old who was visited by Gabriel. And we really want to try and see that this woman is actually a woman of action, a woman of unbelievable courage because of what she does and what she says. Because there's a bit between um, last week's account, last week where it finished off that the angel left her, and at that time Mary got ready and hurried to see Elizabeth. And that bit is recorded in Matthew. And she does something really brave. She tells Joseph she's pregnant. That's what's recorded, she goes and tells him before Joseph and Mary came together, Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1, verse 18. And amazingly, even though she didn't know this would happen, Joseph believed her. Because it says in verse 19, because he was a righteous man, what did he do? Well, he didn't do what it says in Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24 he should do if he thought that she was pregnant by another man. Because it's quite clear that if a man sleeps with a virgin who is pledged to be married, you shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them both to death. So if he was a righteous man, that's what he should have done. But he was a righteous man who believed Mary and knew she had done nothing wrong. But Mary didn't know that when she went and told Joseph. That's pretty courageous. That's a really courageous thing to do. And you can imagine the conversation. She tells Joseph, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit because an angel's come and told me. And he says, what, what are we gonna do? What happens now? And she says, angel didn't say anything about that. <coughs> Well, didn't you ask the angel? No, I didn't. I didn't ask the angel anything. I don't know what happens now. And so not surprisingly, the conclusion that Joseph comes to is, if my wife-to-be is actually pregnant by God Almighty, it's a pretty scary thing for me to sleep with her. If the Son of God is inside that woman, am I really going to just go to bed with her as my wife? And that's why in Matthew, when Joseph is then visited in a dream by the angel, the angel specifically says straight off, do not be frightened to take Mary as your wife. It is okay. It is okay for you to take this woman as your wife. And so he completely changes his mind and he gets up and it says as soon as he got up in Matthew, he went and he took Mary as his wife, but he didn't sleep with her. So they were now married. They were as married as when in a church service, the, the minister says, you may now kiss the bride. I now pronounce you man and wife. Now, they're not actually married until they consummate the marriage. But we all regard them as married. Someone who would stand up at that point and say, excuse me, I don't think they are actually married. They're not man and wife just yet would be laughed out. So Mary and Joseph are married, but they don't sleep together. 
And so what do you do if you have got a wife that you've now taken into your house, she's now living with you, but you're not allowed to sleep with her, you mustn't sleep with her? Well, if you're very wise and you don't want to be led into temptation, you do exactly what Joseph did. I think you should go away. I think you should go and see your cousin Elizabeth. And that's what she does. She hurries off. This is the passage we've... She hurries off to the town where Elizabeth lives. And as she's hurrying there... Now, Mary did not know Elizabeth was pregnant. Even though she was six months pregnant because the angel told her... And we're also told back in Luke, um, in, uh, in verse 24, um, that Elizabeth, when she became pregnant, remained in seclusion. So Elizabeth hides herself away in seclusion. Mary does not know that Elizabeth is pregnant until the angel tells her. And that therefore means, pre-mobile phone and text messages or anything else, Elizabeth does not know that Mary is pregnant. So Elizabeth doesn't know Mary's pregnant. So Mary is rushing off, and she's thinking to herself, I'm going to go and see Elizabeth. Fantastic the way God sorted things out with Joseph, but I've got to go and see Elizabeth, and I don't know how I'm going to tell her. How am I going to tell her that I'm pregnant, but I haven't slept with anyone? It's God's son inside me. It's the Messiah. All of our scriptures... Everything that we study as a Jewish people is inside me. Can you imagine what way should I tackle this conversation? So how incredible, how absolutely incredible, that as soon as she just says, Hi, Elizabeth, hello! <laughs> Suddenly, Elizabeth is told through the Holy Spirit and says, Isn't it amazing that the woman who is going to have my Lord and Savior and give birth to it, has come to see me. Can you imagine how Mary would have felt? She was worried about how to have the conversation. There was no need for the conversation. All she said was hello, and God did the rest. It's, it's, it is just incredible that we're told here in verse 45 Elizabeth says, you're blessed. And why are you blessed? You're blessed because you believed that what the Lord has said will be accomplished. That's how you're blessed. And we can all be blessed if we really believe that what the Lord has said to us will be accomplished. And she steps out in carriage first with Joseph, then with Elizabeth, and she's rewarded. And then she sings this song. The Magnificat, as it's called. Now, the Magnificat, it's called the Magnificat because that's the first word in the Latin version. Uh, Latin doesn't need to put the words in order for you to know what they mean. It can play around with the order. So, in Latin, the first line is Magnificat anima mea dominum. It's, it magnifies soul my the Lord because you don't need the order. So that's why it's called the Magnificat. It's the first word. And this is, if you like, the first Christmas carol ever sung. This is definitely the first Advent carol, first Advent hymn. And it is an amazing song of praise, of joy, of thankfulness, and of trust. There is no question about that at all. 
And that's what everyone thinks about. And if you listen to modern versions of the Magnificat, that is what they sing. That's the words they sing. They tend not to go on to verses 52 and 53. They don't tend to go on to the bit that he brought down rulers from their thrones, but he lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. Don't like that. Don't like it so much that in the 1980s in Guatemala, the government banned any writing or public singing or speaking of the Magnificat because the impoverished masses were taking this as a sign that God was on their side. And in Argentina, the military junta did the same. It started to be posted up, these verses, on posts by people who wanted to see freedom and the military junta overthrown. And it was an arrestable offense to say these words in public. That's how revolutionary are. And then before you think that this is just silly South Americans, the British did it in India. It was banned to sing or read the Magnificat in church in India during British rule. That is how revolutionary this song is. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, who eventually, in his opposition to the Nazis, led to his execution, said this of the Magnificat. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreaming Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet nostalgic or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. So when you look at this song, think not of a lady wearing blue, looking absolutely gorgeous, singing it melodiously, but rather of a young woman fighting back tears with her fists clenched, defiantly singing a song of revolution. Because that is closer to the truth. There she stood, a completely unknown future, and praised God. Because this is the young woman who six months later will spend four or five days walking 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. This is the young woman who's going to, at the end of that journey, not have a hotel bed to go to or anywhere to sleep, but actually give birth in some sort of shack. And when she looks out of wherever she is in Bethlehem, for any of you who've been there, what she will see in the sky is Herod's palace. Because two miles south of Bethlehem is an absolutely massive palace that Herod the Great built. He actually raised the mountain to two and a half thousand feet, and it towers over Bethlehem. And when it was lit up, that's what you would see. So there she stood with the Son of God in the manger, the King of the Jews, and she was as she was, and looked up and saw the palace where she felt the Son of God should really be. She saw the palace, she saw the rich, she saw all those people who seemed to be successful and who were evil, 
And some, somehow or other, this Messiah was here. It was all the wrong way around, but again, God comes forward to this courageous young woman and gives her an, a massive re reaffirmation because suddenly some shepherds come in and say, oh, the angels have been back again and they've told us this is exactly on track. This is it. This is the Messiah. So I'm hoping you're starting to see that the images in all these wonderful Renaissance paintings, painted almost exclusively by men, is not the real Mary. Mary was a firebrand. Mary took enormous risks again and again and again. Imagine Mary stays on in Bethlehem for a couple of years. Now, she's got no mother and no mother-in-law to help her with the first young child, and we all know what that does because my wife, particularly as soon as a child is born, is in there like a rat up a drainpipe. She is doing everything for everybody. Mary had none of that. And at last, there's a bit of a turn of events because some really wealthy people come along. We don't know how many, but they bring three presents. And suddenly she's starting to think, well, this is a bit more like having a king. This rich people have come along and they've given us these presents. And what would she have done during that time when she was there for two years? Well, like most young mums, she would have got to meet other young mums and Jesus would have played with other toddlers. His own age, that's what she would have done. So things are picking up and then all of a sudden that night an angel appears again and says, flee to Egypt immediately. She has to leave everything, absolutely everything and do it. And she does it and she takes the toddler with her. And imagine the horror when she finds out that all those mums that she knew have had their sons slaughtered. All the toddlers that Jesus played with who are boys are dead. And it's because of her son. The, the image that we have in those paintings is just so wrong of the young woman who's in front of us in these passages. She was brave, she was courageous, and she was a young woman who was willing to take risks, relying only on one thing, her trust in God. But how does she do these things? How can she do it? And the answer and the secret is in this passage. It's in the song. Not any particular words of the song, but the fact that she could sing it, the fact that she could praise. Because Hebrews, which is the, the book that explains how temple worship, sacrifice, high priests and everything merge into the New Testament, Hebrews ends in the last chapter, in chapter 13 and verse 15, and tells us to do this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of the lips that confess his name, continually praise. When I was young, one of the things that I learned by heart, something that has gone with by, by the wayside now learning anything by heart, but I learned by heart the Catechism of the Westminster Divines, written in 1647. I hasten to add, a long time before I was born. And, and the very first question in that is, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man here on earth? And the answer is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
And that troubled me. Troubled me for a long time because I thought to myself, hang on, you, you're trying to say me, God made the world and populated it with people just so they could tell him how wonderful he is. Is, is that what this is about? Because imagine if you had a friend and all the friend ever wanted you to do was just say how wonderful they were. Just keep it coming, keep it coming. More and more, you wouldn't have them as a friend for very much longer. And in the Psalms, which are full of praise, you even get passages where the psalmist says, if you do this for me, God, I'll praise you. And that just seemed to me to be rather weird. And then I found the answer. The answer to the question was in a book on the reflections on the Psalms, written by an Ulsterman by the name of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> it tends to be a C.S. Lewis. And uh, he gave this explanation. God does not need our praise. That's where you're making the mistake, Alan. Of course he doesn't. If no one ever praised God again, it wouldn't make any difference at all. God would still be God. Now, the answer to your question is in that catechism, but there's not two things in that catechism of glorify God and enjoy him forever. One follows the other as night follows day. They are two sides of the same coin. C.S. Lewis explains it, that have you ever, well, have you ever come across a wonderful view, a fantastic view that just takes your breath away, but you're on your own, and there's no one to share it with? There's no one to say, isn't that fantastic with? And you miss it. And the joy isn't quite the same joy as a result, because you can't share it, because you can't praise it. And as C.S. Lewis says in his book, um, if we can actually praise, then that completes the enjoyment. This is so even when our expressions are inadequate, as of course they usually are, but how if one could really and fully praise even such things to complete perfection, to utterly be able to express in poetry or music or painting the upsurge of appreciation which bursts from you, then indeed the object would be fully appreciated and our delight would have attained perfect development. And the worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. It is along these lines that I find it easiest to understand the Christian doctrine that heaven is a place in which angels now and men hereafter are perpetually employed in praising God. Because there is no greater thing than God. There is nothing that we will ever see that is greater than God. And if we can praise it perfectly, then our joy will be complete. And that's why I think that poor old Zachariah was punished. And he was punished when he was struck down because he wasn't able to praise. He couldn't complete the joy of finding out. Can you imagine it? When Mary came and Elizabeth was telling her all about him seeing the angel, he not only couldn't get a word in edgeways, he couldn't get a word in. He couldn't speak. He had to sit and listen to his wife explain the greatest thing that had ever happened to him, and he couldn't speak about it. And is it any surprise, therefore, that we read later on in this chapter, in verse 64, when he can speak again, when John is born, and he said, he writes, his name is John, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose, and he began to speak, 
praising God. And then he sings a song, the second Advent hymn. His song is even longer than, than Mary's. Can you see it? Praise is completed. Now, I just would like to introduce you to, to one other person, but how do you actually do this? How do you praise God when you just don't feel like it? How do you praise God continually? And if I could introduce you to a person called Heman. Now, now Heman is in the Old Testament, and Heman was put by King David in charge of the music when the Ark of Co the Covenant came into Jerusalem. He was in charge of all the music, all the praise. Um, David, if you remember, danced in front of the ark, but all the musical instruments, everything that was going on, he was in charge. And then we're told that in uh, 1 Chronicles 25, we read that he, together with Asaph and Jeduthun, are put in charge of all the worship in Jerusalem thereafter. But Heman is singled out as having 14 sons. And he has 14 sons, and all the sons were given to him, verse 5, through the promises of God to exalt him. And they were all musical. 14 of them plus him. It, it beats even the Faux family. 14 of them, all musical instruments, all gifted. And we read in 2 Chronicles 5, verse 11 to 14, that he is named with all his sons to play by Solomon when they dedicate the temple. So he's organizing all the music for the dedication of Solomon's temple. And we, we find that he's there with all his sons. Can you imagine how wonderful it would be to have all your sons playing music with you as someone who can't play music at all? I struggle with that, but I imagine it must be wonderful. And he's there when God's glory comes into the temple and the glory of the God comes down in such a way that all the Israelites see the fire and they knelt on the pavement with their faces in the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the lord saying he is good his love endures forever and why am i telling you about this man i'm telling you about him because i'd really invite you when you go home to read psalm 88. get it out and read it because heman wrote it and it is the saddest most depressing forlorn hopeless psalm of all of them most psalms end with, but I will praise God, not this one. This one ends, darkness is my closest friend. So what I'm trying to say to you here is, this is the man who was in charge of all the praise and all the worship when the ark came into Jerusalem, the same man who was there that Solomon chose to do all the praise and all the worship at the temple when it was dedicated by Solomon with his 14 sons. And the song that he wrote in Psalm 88 is just so miserable because you can't afford to wait to praise God until you feel like it. Man's chief end is to glorify God not when he feels like it. His chief end is to glorify God every day no matter how he feels. And how are you to do that? How do we get into that position? I'm going to tell you a story of an art critic an art critic was in the National Gallery in London and he stood in front of one of the paintings of Mary. And it's Mary looking wonderful and beautiful. It's by uh, Filippino Lippi, so it's perfect Renaissance 
dove-like expression, looking down on this beautiful sweet girl, and she's there with the baby on her lap, and Saint Jerome and Saint Dominic are at her feet, bowed on their knees. And he thought, as lots of other art critics have before, the painting is there, you can go and see it, and it is worth going to see because you'll experience the same experience yourself. The background and all the rocks look as if they're about to fall down and crush them. They look too big and they look hanging over. And lots of people have said, why did he paint it like this? Because we know he was a good painter. Why did he do this? And suddenly it hit this art critic what was wrong. And he got down on his knees and everything was in perfect perspective. And the background was no longer looking threatening and dangerous and the circumstances they were into all fitted perfectly. And that's how you praise God continually. You praise God continually by learning that whatever is coming at you, whatever you don't like, whatever, you get down on your knees and you see yourself in the right perspective of who you are and who God is. Because as Jesus taught us, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And that's how Heman was able to praise God, no matter how he felt. That's how Mary was able to sing this wonderful song, despite not even having a clue what was going to go on and what was going to happen to her. And that's why that courageous young woman, 33 years later, would be standing at the foot of the cross when nearly all the disciples had fled. And we're told in Acts 1.14, she was there at Pentecost to be blessed by the Holy Spirit with 120 others. And she supported her son James, who then became head of the church. Because James met his brother as the risen Lord and worshipped him. So let's not turn Mary into a chocolate box Christmas card figure, but see her for the real courageous, action-driven, trusting follower of God that she was, who learned to approach God only one way, on her knees. And so she was able to give him praise continually and fulfill her purpose on earth which was to glorify God so that she now enjoys him forever. Amen. <laughs>